I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy a megachurch, and I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, uh, occasional preacher, a movie buff, and I'm an evangelical. Yeah, yeah. You, you, I, I, I told you everything I, I wanted to last time, so okay, Dave, you're an evangelical. <laughs> this is Veterans of Culture Wars. Acceptance. Resignation. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And tonight we have a guest who has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Religion News Service, and many other outlets. She was the youngest and first female editor for Christianity Today. She has written a book... Managing editor. Sorry about that. Yes. First female managing editor for Christianity Today. She has written a book a few years ago, uh, A Woman's Place, and has a forthcoming book out next August, Celebrities for Jesus. Finally, she's a co-host with Roxanne Stone of the new podcast, Saved by the City, new this year. Zach, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this podcast. I've listened to every episode, I think, and it's informative. There's different diverse voices that are a part of it. It's funny. It's very raw and honest conversations about faith and living in the big city of New York. So it's really great. And Thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> welcome to the show. Think, there she I, is. I don't think you Caitlin. said her name. Yes. Um, so I, I don't know if you're waiting for me to say something. I was going to say, yeah, you keep talking about how much you like this podcast. And if you start dropping hints about wanting to move to New York, I, I think it's going to it may be her fault. Um, well, Caitlin Beatty. Yes. Welcome to the show. Yes. That's her. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and I saw in your bio, uh, I think I think you had written somewhere, uh, Beatty like Warren Beatty. So mm-hmm. we pronounced Not that right. Yeah, yeah, way to go. Yeah, I, I'm impressed. <laughs> I, I was expecting to correct you, but you got it right. No, no <laughs> cool. relation, though? No, he's two T's. Oh, Warren. that's right. He spells yeah. it wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a way to um, dive into the conversation here, we usually have our guests share their story with evangelical Christianity and, and um, mm-hmm. what their, their journey on that. And I, I thought of an interesting way into that question. Recently on, I believe, your season two debut of Saved by the City, you and your co-host Roxanne got to interview the, the reigning monarch of contemporary Christian music uh, and pop superstar Amy Grant. Um, and presumably in your evangelical youth group, uh, you listen to Amy Grant and maybe even beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was that like having Amy Grant presumably mm. in front of you on a screen <laughs> talking to you? Um, what, what was that experience like? Yeah, it's, I have no moral grounding for critiquing celebrity worship in the church because that was my experience of celebrity worship interviewing Amy Grant. Um, yeah, definitely. A, her music was a big part of my upbringing, especially the Christmas albums. Um, I would say, gosh, my, <laughs> I don't know. I could talk for a long time. I will try to keep this short. Um, 
I mean, you can't understand my faith background without understanding evangelicalism. Um, my family, my parents were, I would say, nominal Christians. I know that's like a loaded term, but they they took us to church growing up until I was a young teenager. We never talked about God or Jesus or the Bible at home, but I think for them at that time it was this is what good parents do. It's a good moral formation. I never really gave church or the contents of church much thought until we started going to a seeker sensitive, I would say kind of mega church hopeful when I was 12 or 13 in Southwest Ohio. Um, it was a United Methodist church, but there was nothing really about the church that would have led me to, to know that, you know, to be that we were a part of this broader denominational history. I didn't know who John Wesley was. Um, and so that was really the start of my exposure to evangelicalism. I had a born again experience through that church. Um, you know, in eighth grade, the youth group went to a youth rally at another church and Jeff Moore and the distance Ooh. were playing, uh, G E O F F very yeah, important. Right. Right. Um, I definitely called played, him Geoff for a long time. Yeah, Geoff <laughs> more in the distance were there. And um, they played home run like at least twice. And there was an evangelistic message at the end. And I, I very distinctly remember like, I want to stand up. I want to make a commitment for Jesus, but I'm scared as to what the boys in the youth group will think of me. And then I had this like, no, I'm going to power through. I'm going to stand up. And I, I mean, as as um <laughs> uh as cliched as that experience was from kind of a cultural this was like peak evangelical youth culture late 90s 1998 uh so i can kind of look at it through that lens and talk about there was no follow through and it was very much based on like an emotional high and but i st i i still attribute that as my born again experience um, and so thankfully after that, you know, I had actually a, a positive, uh, youth group experience. Our youth pastor was a young woman who was preparing for, she had gone to Fuller Seminary. She was preparing for the pastorate. So that was unique in that I actually didn't grow up with a ton of, um, uh, patriarchal teachings in the church because the United Methodist Church ordained women very much supported women in ministry. And I had a model of that. I would experience some of that later working at Christianity today, but I, I didn't have any of those trappings growing up in the United Methodist Church. Um, I went to public high school. And so when it came time to choose a college, I was like, I really want to go someplace where faith is talked about in the classroom. And so I went to, I, I applied to Wheaton, Taylor and Calvin College, now university in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, Calvin was a revelation for me because I had never been exposed to the intellectual side of Christian faith. I'd never read C.S. Lewis or Frederick Buechner or knew even who like Martin Luther or Karl Barth or John Calvin was until I got to Calvin. So the experience of seeing that I could truly love God with my mind and that learning itself and engaging with the world instead of kind of separating from it was actually part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. 
was a huge, hugely formative and positive part of my, um, my Christian formation, evangelical formation. Um, when I left Calvin, I started working at Christianity Today. I would end up being there for 10 years. Um, youngest female managing editor. Um, it's interesting. We, we might talk about, if it's not too insidery, like elite versus populist evangelicalism. I think right. uh, at the working at Christianity Today, it's based in the Chicago suburbs. It was really easy to think that we were like the center of evangelical faith, like Christians read us and we kind of lead the conversation and people will read our editorials and that will shape how they think about the world. And maybe that was true for CT 40 years ago, 30 years ago, but there was, it was a real um, jarring experience to have, you know, 81% of white voting evangelicals vote for Trump, despite the fact that CT had like run an editorial expressly condemning Trump and calling Christians to not support him. That's written by Mark Galley, right? um, So that, that editorial was actually written by Andy Crouch in Hmm. October, 2016, right after the access Hollywood tape was released and arguably that editorial should have come sooner, but like, you know, we all thought like, surely, (laughs) surely (laughs) this will be the, the death knell of this person's presidential campaign. And it was not. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it feels cliche to say, but it really was the case that the 2016 election was a kind of an existential um, crisis for me as an evangelical, as someone who had kind of defended evangelicals' reputation. Um, I think there was so much reputational damage done in so much of the evangelical church supporting Trump. And yet, you know, plenty of Christians of color <laughs> um, would ha- would have said like, this is actually not surprising at all. We've been trying to tell you that there is a, a kind of central whiteness and resistance to racial justice and uh, patriarchy at the center of white evangelicals, white evangelicalism, and you didn't see it. And now this is kind of one manifestation of it. So um, I, I am still, I am super grateful for my evangelical upbringing. <laughs> I think it shaped me in some really important and fruitful ways. I'm definitely a Christian. Whether or not I'm an evangelical, it kind of depends on who I'm talking to. And actually, I don't I don't know that it's that important to figure out whether I am or not. Like I think one of the reliefs of the last 4 years has been realizing that the evangelical bubble is not the whole of vibrant Christian faith. And it doesn't hinge on whether you like use the E word or not. Like this is such a, this is such a intramural conversation when we think it's like the world, we think the world cares about whether or not the evangelical (laughs) label is helpful. I don't think it, I don't think that's true. I think most people just could care less, you know, and when it comes to, Christian witness, what matters is not like whether you use the evangelical label. It's like, do you love your neighbor as, as Christ calls you to? So. Absolutely. Whoo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love you. I love your story. Um, And, and on the, on the Trump piece in 2016, um, actually, I, I remember reading your article that you wrote in the Washington post and that was published on November 14, 2016. 
And it really was, I, you know, I, I read Christianity Today, so I think I, I recognized your name. And then um, I saw that you wrote this article. And like a lot of people among the 19% of evangelicals who did not vote for Donald Trump, that was me. I, I just was kind of in a fog. I was really shocked. I remember walking into my office and asking my coworker something like, what the hell just happened? And he said, it's a dark, dark day in America. I just remember his words, this very almost stoically, and it was just haunting. And I read your piece um, in the Washington Post, which um, the headline communicates a lot. I was an evangelical magazine editor, but now I can't defend my evangelical community. And that gave me language, I think, right there, um, a lot along the lines of what you just said, that I, I still call myself an evangelical for theological reasons. I still believe like the apostles creed, like Jesus died and, and was rose again. And, and there was a virgin birth. I still believe those things. And that still means a lot to me, mm-hmm. but I can't be an apologist for the evangelical church anymore. Not after this, this just seemed, you know, it was such a crossing of so many lines um, mm. that I think that disillusionment, and, and a lot of what you guys talk about in Saved by the City, too, that comes out. Not that you always talk about Trump. I think he's hardly ever mentioned, you know, for our listeners who may want to listen to you and Roxanne's conversations. But there is kind of a like. Are, are you saying that your listeners don't like listening about Trump? Like they're, they're over it? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I think most of our listeners that we interact with on Twitter or our personal friends, I, I think they're still trying to like process everything that's happened, even 10 months mm-hmm. on of this four-year period. I can mm-hmm. imagine there are, I mean, I, I'm kind of tired of talking about Donald Trump a lot, so maybe mm-hmm. I, yeah, I speak well, my own experience. <laughs> maybe get another four years to talk about him. Uh, <laughs> let us, oh, let us hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a, a, a question related to that same piece. So, so, a quote here that you ended that that piece writing, um, but this time, this election, I can't defend my people. I barely recognize them. It's like the way you love your offbeat uncle, the one who rambles at Thanksgiving dinner about threats to his freedoms and political correctness run amok. You understand why he feels the way he does. You sympathize with him on many points. But when he starts in with racial slurs and sexist jokes and complaints about, quote, illegals, at some point, you have to get up and leave the table. After four years of Trump, the insurrection, the specter of another four years of Trump looming is a real possibility in the not too distant future. And Thanksgiving oh. coming up. Oh. Are you still inviting that uncle over for Thanksgiving? <laughs> are you still spending Thanksgiving with him? Because I'm not. Oh. Like oh. my family canceled Thanksgiving in 2017 oh. because of fights about Trump. Oh. And so, we're probably yeah. not spending Thanksgiving with my wife's side of the family because they're into him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll deal with like the, like the concrete and then I'll deal with the metaphor. So the concrete is that truthfully, no one in my family did support Trump, um, which I actually count to be a blessing only because it means that not just like we can have conversations at Thanksgiving and it's not going to blow up. I think one reason I'm so grateful that my parents, I mean, they, they're conservative theologically. I don't know that they've voted for a Democrat ever, but neither of them voted for Trump. 
and thought he mm -hmm. was a despicable person. Mm -hmm. And that was so meaningful to me, not just because we could like have kind of political conversations and not be at odds, but because it felt like, oh, like the values that you instilled in me as Christians, as, as thoughtful, caring Christians, those still apply at the voting booth. Like what you taught me, you're consistent in. And it's a fantastic gift. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so, so at the Beatty household, Thanksgiving is not canceled. I mean, I think if you sat us down and kind of asked us about really specific policies, like we would all have slightly different answers. Right. But it, it, there's some relief in knowing like we're, we're like working on the same page or the same chapter, you know, we're like not in different chapters. I, I have had, I have friends who are, I don't know if they voted for Trump, but I know that they are sympathetic to people who did vote for Trump. They would be sympathetic to the sense that like Christians are under threat. Um, there, there, there are these cultural shifts that are happening really quickly and we need a strong man. And, you know, the Democrats have <laughs> done no outreach to conservative Christians and this guy comes along and says he's going to defend us and like no we don't like him and no he's kind of morally despicable but he says he's going to be a strong man like I I know the rationale but I I learned pretty soon after the 2016 election that it actually wasn't helpful to have those conversations and I don't even I don't know what that means I don't know what that means about myself about my friendships about where we are in terms of political discourse, but I think Trump as a person in terms of his rhetoric, um, how he uses language, I think he poisoned the well of mm -hmm. civil discourse. Um, and, you know, four years later, he's not in office. There's, you know, these problems, these divides still exist, but there's not the same kind of poisonous, um, there's not, there's not the same kind of poisonous rancor in the water. You know, like I think he was someone who kind of delighted in, in adding the poison. There's the disillusionment of watching the people that we cared about that told us right from wrong and that instilled us with Christian values, initially supporting him, some of them holding their nose, but still doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was the, like the slow rolling trauma of watching people transform into supporters of him as they actually mm -hmm. like, delighted in his presidency and what he was doing over that time and uh -huh. like i've i've had to come to a place of acceptance that so my dad died in 2018 and at that point he was not full maga he mm. voted for him but mm. it was a holding his nose sort of thing mm -hmm. and i've come to be grateful that mm. he died while he was still the man that I knew and hadn't had that invasion of the body snatchers experience that so many have seen as their parents have transformed into unrecognizable people. It seems mm -hmm. where I didn't get to watch that. Um, so that's, that's rough. But um, as far as like the rancor, the, 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 the language not being as, as intense as it was in 2016, there's that, but the fact is that what Trump succeeded in doing is splitting us into two completely different realities. 
mm-hmm. which you've written about in, with the QAnon piece that you wrote mm-hmm. um, in in um, August of 2020, I think, uh, for mm-hmm. for Religion News Service about about pastors having to deal with the infiltration of QAnon in their mm-hmm. pulpits. And, you know, since then, like the Q figures disappeared. We all pretty much know it's probably this guy, Ron Watkins, who's running for Congress in Arizona right now. Oh, really? We know who Q is? It's I'm, it's not 100%, but it's mostly understood. Interesting. That, that oh it was that, um, was it a documentary, Zach, on HBO? Yeah, H- that, HBO. Uh, HBO the, the Q. Yeah, the, the documentarian Which, yeah. was like with the Watkinses for like two years mm. or something, just hanging out and and got enough information where it's most likely wasn't it probably wasn't him initially, but he mm. was in charge of the board and at some point took over the account and was the one posting that. So, um, but Q's gone, but the beliefs of Q persist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 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 now there's this dedication to this alternate reality where Trump actually won the election. That's become a central tenet of Republican beliefs, and it, it could be then argued white evangelical beliefs. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen all these stories about evangelical Christians refusing the COVID vaccine and applying for mandate exemptions based on mm-hmm. so-called religious grounds, which to me, this feels like just another extension of the QAnon mentality where basically mm-hmm. whatever somebody believes is now mm-hmm. part of their religious belief, mm-hmm. no matter how divorced it is from the actual religious text. Um I, it made me think of, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the 1955 Charles Lawton film, Night of the Hunter, uh, uh-uh. Robert Mitchum. It's, it's where the, the, the tattooed hate and love knuckles things come from originally. Oh, interesting. So okay. he's, he's a traveling preacher. So he says, um, mm-hmm. he's also a murderer. Um, and at one point a character asks him, what, what religion do you profess preacher? And he responds, the religion, the almighty and me worked out betwixt us. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it seems like we've got a whole lot of Harry Powell's. That's the, the preacher there in, in, mm. in evangelicalism right now. And mm. I guess I'm wondering where you see that going. And is, is there any mm. way of looking at this that you think has gotten better since you wrote that QAnon piece? Mm. So I mean, on a very pragmatic level, I think it's a good thing that if I understand correctly, Facebook now meta <laughs> um, <laughs> has largely kind of shut down some of the primary forums where Q content was being spread. Of course, if you're looking for it, you can find it. It's, you know, if you're looking for anything on the internet, you're going to find it. But it seems like some of the foment in QAnon circles has been squelched a little bit since last summer because of the shutdown of this forum. So I think that's a good thing. I think, Zach, you're totally right that just because Trump isn't in office anymore and just because Q has kind of quieted down doesn't mean that the deeper problems have been solved. Like they're really just uh, symptoms of a deeper epistemological crisis, which is that, um, Americans are not working from the same, uh, they're not working from the same construction of reality 
and any construction of reality that you want to find, you can find online. I mean, I, yeah. I don't, I don't even, you know, this religious <laughs> exemptions for the vaccines. It's not religious. I mean, it's yeah. not religious. It has nothing to do with like true Christian tenets, right? Like central tenets of the Christian faith. It has to do with some like quasi quasi religious claim to there being some alternate truth or alternate reality than what mainstream media and Anthony Fauci are presenting. <laughs> Why it's taken on a religious tone or a religious meaning in people's lives, I think is super interesting and super concerning, like for any, for any church, like Christian church leader, like, why is it that these beliefs aren't just merely political or kind of personal preference, but they've taken on the, the spirit of like religious belief. I mean, I think that's what I learned in reporting on the, the piece that came out last summer on QAnon was in talking to pastors, they were finding that this these conspiracy theories were operating as an alternate religion among people who were sitting in their pews week in and week out, which is why at the end of that piece, I, I labeled it as a kind of syncretism, um, like utterly incompatible um, claims to truth being mixed together um, in a way that I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't envy any pastor right now trying trying to kind of deal with QAnon or QAnon like conspiracy theories in their midst. I don't know if you have people in your family trying to claim the the religious exemption from from getting the vaccine. I do. I I I have a a a cousin whose whose brother died of covid in his 20s. Oh and my gosh. Her husband's in the military and she's posting about hoping that you know God's going to protect him if he loses his job because he's refusing to get vaccinated. My sister-in-law is a nurse who's refusing it. My father-in-law works for a school here in Washington where there's a mandate that I don't know if he got a religious exemption. I think he's supposed to be fired by now. Um, So we're just kind of waiting to hear, but we don't want to reach out to them and get in a fight about it. And, and I just, the thought occurred to me the other day that like it, it, there's, I've had many, many discussions over my my life and my Christian experience about the meaning of taking the Lord's name in vain. Mm. And, uh, mm. you know, as a kid, it was, don't say, oh, my God, <laughs> like, that's all mm-hmm. that it means. And then you grow up and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, yeah, like, like, taking on the, the mantle of, of Christian, taking on that identity, mm. uh, just... Mm-hmm and using it as an excuse for whatever you want to do. Uh, I, I, these days, I just can't think of a better example of taking the Lord's name in vain than a religious exemption for the mm. vaccine. Well, this also goes back to Trump. <laughs> Sorry to your listeners. I mean, I have genuinely enjoyed not really thinking about him for the last 11 months. Like maybe that's my privilege or something, but as soon as he got kicked off Twitter, it's been such a relief. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think it would have been, I think it would have been one thing if, you know, evangelical, and I'm thinking specifically of leaders because I, I do, um, I hold 
evangelical leaders to a kind of higher account than kind of people in the pews who I might be able to say like they're they're they haven't been properly educated or they're just following what their pastor is saying or what Franklin Graham is saying. It would have been one thing if the leaders had said like, okay, in every way, <laughs> this man has not led a moral, a morally upright life. Um, we cannot baptize or abide by any of that. We are merely signing off on his policies. But then that's not what happened. You know, like it wasn't even an attempt at being principled. It was this like such weird rationales for like, Trump being a baby Christian or being a Cyrus figure or, (laughs) you know, like, well, who among us doesn't talk like that? And I'm like, really? (laughs) This is how you guys talk (laughs) when you're alone? Like you're telling on yourself. I think the attempt to kind of justify him, you know, was what just felt like, you're trying to say that something that's unholy is holy. You're trying to give moral cover to something that is clearly immoral. Like if you're going to support this immoral person, like just, just point to the policy. Stop trying to convince us that like, he's somehow not who we all see that he is. (laughs) Yeah. Some kind of godly figure. Um, And taking that and and circling back to, um, when you were telling your story and talking about the elite evangelical type of tag, mm-hmm. um, and even mixing that in with our talk about QAnon tonight, there seems to be this disturbing thing going on where elite evangelical versus, I guess, real evangelical. And it's been going on on Twitter and just with accusations and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people who are elite evangelicals, according to, I guess, very far right, very conservative people like Russell Moore, uh, the former Southern Baptist ethics guy, uh, Phil Vischer, who runs the Holy Post podcast. And what's really disturbing about it is any attempt of, of Phil or Russell Moore to question Trump or mm-hmm. Phil Vischer put out that really, um, really good, I thought, a video on racism last summer after George Floyd was murdered by the police officer. And so any any deviation from this, I guess, conservative mindset, this very narrow way of seeing things, mm-hmm. someone is immediately labeled this quote unquote elite evangelical. And, mm-hmm. and it's such a, I mean, it's an us versus them. It, it's just you know, kicking people out of out of the camp who, I mean, with Russell Moore and Phil Vischer, there's no way those guys are like liberal or progressive, right? <laughs> like Zach and I are <laughs> yeah. progressive. If I sat like, down with Russell Moore or Phil, we would disagree on a lot of political things. But Right. I mean, if Phil or Russell Moore came to Brooklyn and had a conversation with like the local, you know, organizers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> these men are not progressive. I don't know that, that one veggie tales <laughs> episode about the vegetables all coming together to seize the means of production. Mm. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to, I want to think of a Marxist vegetable pun. Right now. <laughs> it's not, it's not coming to mind, but yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's if if Phil Vischer and Russell Moore and Karen Swallow Pryor and Beth Moore, who, you know, all of them, to some degree, I disagree with or like I would nuance things or I would 
kind of emphasize certain things over others, but there's no way that these people aren't theologically conservative evangelicals who, you know, want nothing to do with like aligning themselves with secular liberal politics. Like if they're out of the camp, that makes me really, uh, like who's in nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like, you know, the SBC leaders who tried to get Russ, you know, who wanted Russell Moore kicked out or, it also just strikes me that so much of this, these conversations or debates or maneuvers internally at different organizations or denominations are not really about, I don't even think they're really about theology. I think they're about power and politics. I think they're about who gets, who gets to have the head seat at the table. Um, And I, I, I don't know if this is, fair but i i also think some of it is fear like i think some of it's if they have if they're at the seat at the if they are at the head of the table where are we headed you know the narrative of liberal drift the fear of liberal drift is so is such a profoundly evangelical psychological yeah <laughs> uh yeah. mindset um and so if you can get that fear of liberal drift if you can kind of attach somebody's name to they might be a liberal or whatever who knows who they you know voted for in 2016 like that really taps into a very deep seated very real visceral kind of fear I think in a lot of evangelical circles that I didn't realize until I was a little bit farther removed from it like how how much fear can often play a factor in these conversations you talked about when 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 you went to Christianity today and and sort of had this perception of it being or the magazine has a perception of itself one could say or I believe is maybe how you phrased it as, as being sort of at the center of evangelical discussion, driving the conversation, being Mm -hmm. uh, a more intellectual voice. And and I thought of it that way for a long time. Um, I I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the other voices that are out there. Like I had never heard of charisma magazine until marrying into my wife's family and seeing stacks of that uh, Mm. on their table and Mm -hmm. thumbing through that and realizing that this is a very different way of discussing (laughs) these matters of faith than, than how Christianity today approaches it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, Mm -hmm. and also, you know, now you, you know, your podcast comes out through religion news service and you've, you've written for Mm -hmm. them. And I'm wondering if you could, explain the difference between something like CT and RNS and charisma, whether it's, you know, funding or editorial influence or their role or mission in the space of religious journalism. Mm -hmm. So I would say I I would actually put religion news service in a slightly different category because it's not confessional. Um, So it, it is, it is a, 
publication and service, a wire service that reports on all different religions. Right. I mean, a lot of their coverage is about Christians because Christians are the largest you know, religious group in the United States. But like last week, there was an article about Jew witches, <laughs> like, <laughs> Jewish women who are really interested in witchcraft. So like, you know, no evangelical Christian would go to the RNS page that day and be like, ah, oh, this is for me. You know, these are my people, <laughs> um, which is, I think can be like alarming or confusing if that's what you're expecting. But religion news service is, is not, I mean, it is truly secular, even though it's interested in religion journalism. Which is why with Say by the City, you know, we, in the first season, we talked with people who weren't Christians at all. You know, we had a conversation with a Jewish and Muslim women about um, religious clothing and modesty. So um, Christianity Today, uh, founded by Billy Graham in 1956, um, very much part of the post-war evangelical movement. Um has always understood itself as a movement magazine. I think its uh, location in the Chicago suburbs has a lot to do and its proximity to Wheaton College and like Trinity Evangelical Divinity School um, and Moody, like I think that has a lot to do with its orientation. Northern evangelicals, you know, like I think Anglicans, like Christians who identify as Anglican or Episcopalian make up like an unusually high number of Christianity Today readers. And that's just in part like a reflection of the Wheaton world. Um, CT, I mean, to its credit, I think it has always tried to stay above the fray politically. So I I think that's to their credit because it might have been easy at some point in its history to kind of quietly align with um politically conservative political conservatism i mean that's that was the history of the religious right that's where a lot of money and funding and subscriber uh subscription base would have been i think that they've tried to stay above the fray i think sometimes staying above the fray can look like um a neutrality that i don't always know is helpful from an editorial perspective but um, yeah. And I mean, like now, like Russell Moore is an editor with Christianity Today. And um, I just think that's an interesting turn. Charisma is definitely like Pentecostal. I don't I think they're based in Florida. Interestingly, the founder of Charisma is the father of the founder of Relevant magazine. So Steve Strang and Cameron Whoa. Strang. Whoa. Steve is the father. Cameron is the son some kind of family dynamic there that would be really interesting to explore at some point. Um, (laughs) I think it was charisma that where I first read like a prophetic word proclaiming that Trump would be the president in 2016. And it was, I'm going to butcher this. I don't remember the phrasing, but it was something like Trump will be my trumpet. They really latched onto the word trumpet and like took from that that it was Trump. <laughs> I was like, this is so weird. And then apparently a lot of people think that way. Um, so World Magazine would be another kind of leading religious uh, Christian publication. Um, gosh, I don't remember where they're based, but 
similar to Christianity Today in that world, it does pretty good reporting. I would say both magazines have solid journalistic chops. Um, but world would be much more kind of politically aligned. It would be more, more comfortable with like an overt political conservatism. Um, Albert Moeller is now an editor there. So, um, do you know like how, how big charisma is compared to the other ones? I would love that number. I, I think their subscription base far outnumbers i gosh i really that's what i'm starting to think i mean (laughs) i think it's if anybody who hasn't listened when i encounter them it's basically like this is the magazine form of a televangelist channel Mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely yeah it's so yeah (laughs) i think it i think it was just i think it was just naive of ct to think that the vast majority of evangelicals would have aligned more with CT than with charisma. Like mm-hmm. actually charisma wasn't like the weird uncle at the family. Like charisma was actually like the primary family gathering. Yeah. <laughs> and CT I- was like this, you know, weird scholarly uncle who kind of drops in from time to time. And I don't know, wants to be published in the New Yorker or something. <laughs> so yeah and yeah. I, I, I it, it felt like ch- charisma is the 87 percent or whatever that, that voted for trump and, yeah definitely and ct represents the much smaller slice of the 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 more intellectual the some some would say left-leaning side of things at least that, that's the impression that i got uh it was absolutely terrifying to me to to look through that magazine <laughs> <laughs> there there are mm-hmm. there were some pretty conservative you know chuck colson used to write a column mm. for christianity today but they they do have a diverse array of voices i would say too um caitlin so this book that we referenced at the the top of the podcast celebrities for jesus how personas platforms and prophets are hurting the church coming out august 2022 i um i am personally excited for this book because i you know, I'm still around a lot of evangelicals. I've actually heard on the Holy Post podcast, I think just kind of, you know, throwaway comments or people mentioning about the celebrity of the evangelical subculture and how that is like really hurting the church and how mm-hmm. we're, I mean, to use Christian language, we're making idols of pastors. And, you know, we have pastors getting paid $700,000 salaries and sprawling megachurch campuses and worldwide podcasts and music going out. Um, I, I think this is going to be a big book because it's, it's, it's waiting for somebody to take like a deep dive into it, like, like mm-hmm. what you're doing uh, next summer. So could you give us some details about the book? Anything you want to spill or tell us about uh, what you're, <laughs> <laughs> what you're looking at? You turned in your first manuscript and. Yeah. How yeah, do we become a- Christian celebrities? Yeah, yeah. Um, first, you need you need to buy like a ton of Instagram fake followers. Yes, cool. All right. Um, yeah. So, I'm hoping that it is timely. I mean, it definitely seems like conversations about celebrity in the church are very much in the water through no small part because of the Mars Hill podcast and kind of the um, analysis of like what went wrong there. There's a lot that we could point to, but I do think in some real way, like Mark Driscoll was a national celebrity who is 
increasingly disconnected from the life of the local church, um, adopted the tools of mass media to project an image of himself as the brand. And um, I don't mean to implicate either of you. I don't know your involvement with the church precisely, but that's totally fine. Um, I leaked the who... William Wallace papers. Really? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so you yeah. weren't a fan of what was going on. <laughs> no. Um, no. Um, it was after 2000 to 2009. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I ran a site in 2014 that that collected people's stories of of trauma and such of their their time at Mars Hill. Were and you Wenatchee the hatchet? No, he's a friend of both of ours, though. Okay. Uh, he, he, he doesn't want to appear on a podcast, though. Fair <laughs> um, enough, yeah. yeah. He's very much a, a, you know, write it down, not mm-hmm. not, not a discussing sort mm-hmm. of guy. I will tell um, him he gets a citation. He's going to be really excited about that. I mean, what's, <laughs> That's cool. what's so, I mean, this is a slight tangent. And this is actually the way that celebrity works is when you have like a toxic celebrity and everybody ends up talking about them instead of the other thing. Um, But, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I remember reading lots of, there were lots of blogs and online conversations about kind of what was happening at Mars Hill. But at the time, and I don't know if it was something about internet culture or it was pre Me Too, or I don't know what it was, but it was like, oh, that's just like kind of these silly blog conversations. Like people are just really hurt and they're upset. And I guess they, they need an outlet for that. But what, what change is it going to make? And now you look back at what was being exposed on those blogs and the kind of conversations that were happening there and things that Rachel Held Evans were ta- was talking about. And you're like, yeah. oh, th- that was all prophetic. <laughs> like that, w- that was all trying to sound the alarm of something really harmful and really painful and really damaging to the church's witness. And 10 years later, we're still having to kind of pick apart and diagnose what happened. And I think, you know, part of what went wrong that goes back to my book is there were enough enablers. Like there were enough people who made excuses for Driscoll or who benefited from their proximity to him as a leader, you know, like he opened doors or, or there was a sense that to be part of what he was doing was to be part of a bit, a grand kind of spiritual mission, like a, a really big, exciting thing happening for God. Um, so I define celebrity in, in the book as social power without proximity. I think there's something about the distancing effect of celebrity that a lot of people know your name and know of you, but increasingly as celebrity has its effect in someone's life, like few people, fewer people really, really know you. And in that lack of proximity and that distance is where you have um, abuses of power. I have a chapter about how celebrity feeds um, abuses of power in many, many different spheres. Um, I have a chapter on megachurch culture and unpacking what happened at Willow Creek. (laughs) Um, I have a chapter on the Christian book publishing industry which is a little bit awkward because I'm 
I'm part of the industry. I mean, I, I am publishing this book with a Christian book publisher and I also work for a Christian book publisher now. Yeah. You're with Baker, right? Um, yeah. With, with Brazos press, which is a division of Baker. So I have this kind of odd kind of insider view of how advances, how we come up with advances and how we, um, how we reward platform over questions of content or maturity or theological education, how people can manufacture celebrity. I mean, like legitimately people buying Instagram followers and kind of, (laughs) um, it's just the next step from like Mark Driscoll using tithe money to bulk buy his own book. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about results. The same sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Using, using deceptive practices to amplify the appearance of celebrity. And honestly, a lot of book publishers know that that's happening and they just kind of look the other way, you know, like I think the editor I have on, on background that the editor at Thomas Nelson in his conversation with Mark Driscoll about real marriage knew that the church was having these conversations or that I shouldn't say the church um, Driscoll and his agent were having conversations with result source about this plan to, you know, buy these bulk purchases, but make it not look like bulk purchases and using church money to do this. And the editor didn't just kind of look the other way. Like, okay, well, that's your, you know, if you want to do that, we're not going to stop you. Right. Wow. And the book, the book was on the New York times bestseller list for one week. Yeah. And it's like, (laughs) it's so they could put the sticker on for all of his books saying New York times bestselling author. Mark Driscoll. I, it's, not, it's not even about it's not even about book sales or royalties at that point. It's just about being able to say the label. You know, for, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, it, raise, raise, you know, platforming, raising all that. I'm um, what you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, because but I but since you brought up the the podcast and Mark Driscoll as as a celebrity, uh, I I am interested in in your take on that um we've had several episodes kind of critiquing our our issues with with the mars hill podcast as not mm-hmm. really centering the victims but something mm-hmm. specific to you and your time there is like in the opening episode when they're it's this you know who killed mars hill framing and mm-hmm. they talk about you know the people that would you know and institutions that platformed him and mm-hmm. and and they mm-hmm. don't really like name exactly who they're talking about and and then mm-hmm. sum it up at the end by being like, we all killed Mark or killed Mars Hill. And uh, most of the listeners ha- would be able to say, no, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I have mm-hmm. no involvement mm-hmm. in that. But I guess we you're speaking as CT mm-hmm. there as the mm-hmm. industry. But the only like self-reflective um, um, thing that he notes in talking about CT's potential role in that is by bringing up the hermeneutics blog which you uh, co-founded. Uh, mm-hmm. it, they, they, talk, they talk with Kate Shellnut, who I believe it was mm-hmm. the two of you primarily that wrote there. Um, so it was founded by me and a reporter named Sarah Pulliam Bailey. Okay. And then a couple years in, Kate kind of took over the blog and was kind of the editorial director of Hermeneutics. Okay. So, so yeah. at any rate, they used the Hermeneutics blog to point to that and say essentially CT was being critical of Mark back then. Um, 
<laughs> and I guess I, I wonder your thoughts on 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 that if if that's disingenuous. Mm. I don't know if it's disingenuous. I just don't think it's the full picture, right? I mean, yes, hermeneutics was a place in the CT universe where you might have a more egalitarian, more kind of critical view of a leader like like Mark Driscoll in represented within CT. But two years before hermeneutics was launched, you also had a, a, I would say rather uncritical profile of Mark Driscoll in the print magazine that was called pastor provocateur. And the whole hook was like, sure, people are offended by him, but look how much his church is growing (laughs) in one of the least church parts of the country. Like, at the end of the day, the reporter. Is that Colin Hansen? Yes. Acknowledged. Yeah. Yes. This person is um, controversial, makes controversial statements, kind of invites controversy, but there wasn't real deep engagement with like the nature of the controversy. It, it was almost like, yeah, but look how big the church is growing. And he espouses reformed doctrine and is kind of being, invited into this T4G world. And um, so I, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's the full picture to say hermeneutics was kind of the final word on Driscoll. And also hermeneutics was a blog and that article was a print article and like in the editorial um, ecosystem, like, you know, a print article would have had much more, review and there would have been higher standards for a print article than than a blog you know Hmm. so at the same time I mean I was in a position of editorial leadership for for part of my tenure at CT and there are lots of things that I think we should have been more clear on um toxic leadership to critique as part of our responsibility that we that we didn't so I I can't I can't just point the finger at specific writers or you know editorial leaders there to say like why didn't you guys do something different because I will probably um there there will be things that I did as a managing editor that maybe five years from now we'll say like that was the wrong call you know like that wasn't that wasn't the right call. So, yeah. No, thank you thank for, you. yeah, thank you for that insight. And you have been so generous with your time. Um, and we talked about some, uh, some serious topics tonight, but how about <laughs> yes. a, fun, a fun question to end this? I saw that um, you are a karaoke queen. I was really love- hoping you were going to, you were going to ask about this. Oh, sweet. All right. <laughs> And yes. when you said we're going like to a fun note that you were going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. So um, pandemic is just totally wiped out by some miracle. You're going mm. through a karaoke bar. Mm-hmm. What are the three songs that you want to sing mm. with your mm. friends? It's a really good question. Um, well, my friends will not be at the microphone. It will just be me, just to be clear. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, they, I mean, cool. they can, like, sing in the background, but, like, yeah. <laughs> Background singers. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So like totally clips of the heart by Bonnie Tyler is the last time I went to karaoke was like a month before the pandemic shut down and I sang it and somebody was like, it's the national anthem of karaoke, which I think is a pretty fitting description. It's just very like big and belty and completely ridiculous. Um, I, I have a list on my phone. Let me see if I can pull <laughs> oh, it up. Right on. Uh, uh, while my, you look that phone. up, I'll say my, I, I've enjoyed doing karaoke quite a bit. It's been a while, but my, my wife and I would, would go and do that. Uh, and I, I remember particularly being pretty good at, uh, at Stevie Wonder's You Are the Sunshine of My Life. Um, mm. But I had, and you know, I could sing fairly high when I was younger. I, I love Beach Boys stuff. And so I'd sing along to that and grew my range a fair amount. But I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever had just a, mortifying experience of not realizing that you picked a song that's just in the wrong register for you so like yes. for me it was prince's raspberry beret I, that's very very high yeah, yeah i just i wasn't really fully thinking the whole way through the song and right, I got in a right. real bad place quickly yes yes i mean two things you have to know kind of going in regarding like choosing a song is, is this in my range? And do I know the lyrics? Like it's better to generally know the lyrics. You don't want to be staring at the screen the whole time. Um, and yeah, the being out of range can be um, a bad scene, but um, this is more like a party trick. But when I was a teenager, I learned all the lyrics to one week by bare naked ladies. Wow. <laughs> um, so that would be one that I'd pull out. Um, Third one. Um, <laughs> I really like the song Shoop. Probably oh, not yeah. going yeah. yeah. okay. to sing that in front of my parents. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's a fun one too. So yeah, those would be my three picks. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to like getting back out there because it hasn't, yeah, karaoke during a pandemic is probably a bad a bad idea. Yeah, uh, not a lot of CCM options uh, when you're doing karaoke going through the book. <laughs> there's there's occasionally like DC Talk and Switchfoot will be in there. I, I went and, to and, Christian, and yeah. I, I, I went to Christian school and I remember the end of the year party in fifth grade. We got a karaoke machine, and I thought everybody in class is going to think I'm the coolest person in the world because I absolutely <laughs> nailed uh, Michael W. Smith's love crusade, which has a rap um, oh, no. <laughs> towards the end. Um, Cause it was, you know, circa 92 or whatever, when like every CCM artist was putting out at least one rap song. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and uh, that was, that was something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, I look forward time. to uh to doing some karaoke again my my youngest it looks like he's gonna be able to finally get vaccinated this weekend mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh maybe maybe the family will go out and do some karaoke sounds like a, plan. <laughs> sounds like a fun time uh well caitlin thank you so much for your time uh everybody go listen to the saved by the city podcast just uh just a really great podcast i really enjoyed listening to it and uh keep your finger next to the pre-order button for um, celebrities for Jesus coming next summer. Um, and they can find information about that on CaitlinBeatty.com and probably following you on Twitter, I'm assuming, at mm -hmm. Caitlin mm -hmm. Beatty. Mm -hmm. Very cool. We'll get all the updates with the book. So 
Yeah, thanks for being here and talking to us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a really good conversation. Dave, Caitlin was great. Uh, That was a really cool interview. It was great to meet her because I've been reading articles by her for for years. And so I'm excited for her new book for sure. Yeah. You know, what, what's your take on, on New York real estate these days? Have, have you found any, <laughs> uh, any affordable spots? Uh, oh my gosh. What is, you think, uh, you think in Queens, I mean, you think in, you know, what is Williamsburg like a, is out of your range, but. Oh, I, I'm sure all of it's out of my range. I mean, what, what is an average, you know, I don't even know the um, probably the low income borough or whatever, but a, a single studio apartment that's 250 square feet or something. I mean, what are we talking like 3000 a month? <laughs> more? more? Yeah. <laughs> more. more. <laughs> I mean, that's uh well, Frank Sinatra saying, you know, if you, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere, but I don't know if I can make it in New York. That's the thing. Uh, yeah. But Caitlin has. It's great though. It's yeah. great. It's great to visit. <laughs> I, need to get, I need to get back there. I went to, I've been to New York twice and it's a really strange feeling for me because everywhere, and I was mostly in Manhattan and Times Square. It, it feels like meeting a celebrity just because you see all those places in movies. It's, it's like a constant, I don't know. You're, you're just like around famous places all the time. Last time I was there, I actually didn't take the subway at all i biked around my entire time that i was there I, we just rode bikes and getting to to see the the bridges and see see the city slowed down like that was really wonderful hmm. um so hopefully next time i'm there there'll be nice weather and i can do some more of that so uh, this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get them. And please leave a rating and a review as that helps others find our show. Be sure to check out our Twitter handles at Pod. I am at Dave J. Lester. And Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. Go to Zach's website, muzak.bandcamp.com. He has some apocalyptic songs that he released in the last month, I think. And also his Christmas album, On Vinyl, is for sale. It is November 2nd as we are recording this, so you can pick up this Christmas record in time for the holidays and, of course, the only appropriate time to listen to Christmas music after Thanksgiving. And you can go to my website if you want, dangeroushope.wordpress.com. Music and logo for the show done by Zach. And as always, remember that the podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%. And I want to add, we had, we had a listener ask recently, on a week where we're not releasing an episode, do they still need to tithe 10%? And, and the answer is, it's more of a question. It's, <laughs> you know, are you willing, you know, one week out of the month, are you willing to have 25% faith, uh, 25% less faith this month? simply because you can't always see the results of what God's doing here with this podcast. Um, so you got to answer that for yourself. Um, but I assure you that all of your tithes are being used for the very important work uh, that, we, that God is doing here at the BCW. 